You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. Well, Jake did an excellent job last week of doing a a high, fast flyover of Genesis, um, all uh, the chapters therein. And this morning we begin uh, diving in and we'll uh, be doing a, um, a closer survey of the book of Genesis throughout uh, the remaining seven weeks. So most of you uh, kicked off uh, home groups this last week. I'm glad that you guys were there. It's good to see so many of you uh, sign up and show up for that. Uh, this week we'll continue and you'll I'll be kicking around questions from Genesis 1 through 3. Genesis 1 through 3 is where we'll be in just a minute. Um, I was gone last week, had the opportunity to join um, hundreds of other men and women, both uh, pastors and laity from all kinds of denominations, including Eastern Orthodox people, Roman Catholics, all evangelical stripes, Um, that you can imagine, Uh, some from Texas, most from around the country, and a significant group from around the world um, to uh, participate in a biblical intensive through the book of Acts with um, leading biblical scholar N.T. Wright. One of the individuals I got to connect with there uh, was a man named Blake McKinney. Blake McKinney and I had talked some over Facebook, but Blake is one of my predecessors here who's pastored uh, at Lost Mountain. In fact, how many of you were here when Blake McKinney was here. Now, that's a lot of you. That's good. He'll be, he'll be glad to know that. So we got to connect, have fun, laugh, talk, share uh, stories about LNBC and discuss all of you deeply and personally. So <laughs> it was fun. We'll let you know later who's in and who's out. But it was, no, it was good. And right now he and I are, are talking, trying to set up a time in the fall where Blake's going to come out, preach for us on a Sunday morning. Um, and just get to reconnect and, and touch base again with the relationships that he's missed since he's been here. So it's so good to see him. Uh, Preben Vong, who came out and talked for us uh, last year, who is one of my doctoral professors, uh, was also Blake McKinney's professor um, in undergrad. So we got, to, we got to share stories of being tortured and persecuted by Dr. Vong while he was present with us, denying it all. So it's a good time. I appreciate the opportunity to be away for a few days. Now, it's not often that you start a series through Genesis uh, in the Gospel of Luke, but that's what we're going to do this morning. And trust me, I know where we're going. So if at times you're nervous and unsure, just know that I know, and that in the end, it's most important that I know. Luke chapter 24. When you watch a good movie or you hear a good song, you're always compelled to share that with someone, to bring someone around. And often you'll see this going on, whether it's a movie, a TV show, um, a song. At certain points, because you've already seen it, you've already heard it, the person you're wanting to see or hear it, you definitely want to make sure they don't miss the most important parts, right? So, uh, and if you've been on the other end of this, it can be irritating when you're sitting watching with someone, they're like, oh, sh- sh- watch this part, watch this part right here, you can't miss it. And then you watch that part, and then, you know, you try to eat a peanut, and they're like, hold on, be quiet, you can't miss this part, watch this one right here. 
Um, in a sense, we, we are intuitive about drawing people's attention to that which is most significant. And as we start a, um, a series in the book of Genesis, I want to make sure that we don't miss the most important thing. So let's look at Luke chapter 24, uh, verses 25 through 27, and I'll tell you what's happened. Uh, Christ has been crucified, he has been buried, uh, he has been resurrected, and he is out among his followers now, and he finds a couple of guys walking on the road to Emmaus, who are disciples, and they're curious about all that this, all of this that's happened, and they're having trouble understanding it. And Jesus says, uh, curious about what? And they're like, oh my gosh, are you the only person in the region who hasn't heard that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified? Now, crucifixions in general were not a big deal, but Jesus' crucifixion was. And he says, what things? And they begin to uh, go through some of what happened. And then in verse 25, Jesus says this, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He says, Scripture testifies to this. The Scriptures give witness to this. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses, that is the Pentateuch, that is Genesis through Deuteronomy, and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures concerning himself. All the scriptures would have been at this time the Hebrew canon, the Hebrew scripture. He's saying uh, Jesus started with Moses. This is quite a class you're getting as you're walking. The resurrected Lord starts with Genesis and walks them through all that the Old Testament says about him. All that the Old Testament says about him. Verses 44 and 45, he's speaking to specifically his disciples. And he says to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's a summary statement whereby Jesus is saying the Old Testament, the entire Hebrew canon is speaking to and pointing toward Jesus Christ. And then we find the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle says this, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And then he lays out the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. What, what the apostle Paul is saying, the entire way that I understand the gospel and Jesus Christ himself is according to the scriptures. If there's no Old Testament background, it's very hard to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. So we have the Savior, we have the greatest apostle, both appealing to the scriptures to explain the events around Jesus' life and the good news of the gospel itself. It's amazing that Jesus himself in his resurrected person would do that, that he would appeal to 
to the scripture. So what I want you not to miss, what I want you not to miss in Genesis is the residue of Christ there, the presence of Christ, the the signpost pointing toward Christ. Genesis is not simply a book whereby we see moral examples, good and bad, and we try to emulate the good and we try to avoid the bad. That is a static, unfaithful understanding of Genesis. So I want you to be looking for Jesus as we progress through this series and as you meet and gather around God's word relationally in home groups. Um, One book I'd recommend to you, and this is not on there, several things that aren't on uh, the sermon notes, if you've got the the app open right now, but will be by the end of the day is a book Uh, by Edmund Clowney called The Unfolding Mystery. By Edmund Clowney called The Unfolding Mystery. It's not a big book, but it's a great book uh, about Christ in and through the Old Testament, where we see him, how we see him. Well, let's pick up with Genesis 1. And what we want to do, what we want to do is see God answer three things this morning or talk to us about three things. The purpose of of creation, the purpose of creation, the problem of life, and the promise of God. I can't stand when they rhyme like that, when they all line up with peas, but that's how it came to me and how it came in my brain. So just as I don't work hard to make them do that, I don't want to push them out when they come. But the purpose of creation, let's look at Genesis Chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. I won't read all of chapter 1. It's a fairly famous chapter. And once you get the rhythm of it down, you understand a bit about what's going on. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and over the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate the water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so, God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. I won't go on, but the rest of it unfolds the same way. A couple of things that are so important to note from the very beginning here. Unlike ancient explanations of why things exist, which all had to do with either uh, uh, battling gods who had sort of morphed out of matter and creation that was already there, One winning, one losing, creating human beings to serve them, to to bring them what they needed, to do for them what they wanted to have done on their behalf, or against modern understandings, secular understandings of creation that this is simply all there is, this is it. If you can't perceive it with your senses, it's not real, and therefore ultimately should not matter. There's incongruency in their thinking. Um... But it should not matter. Genesis tells us that out of nothing, God created all that is. Which means God stands over and above all that is. And it also means that those of us who know God and love God, and we'll see more of this unfold in a minute, 
are called to understand his creation as he does, as good. As having suffered, and we'll talk about that in a minute, under the weight of the curse of sin, but primarily as good, as God's choice. And therefore, when redeemed men and women come under the lordship of Christ, we participate in caring for and nurturing his creation. I was at the Lenox Mall in Buckhead yesterday and the car in front of me when I pulled in and parked had a real simple uh, sticker on the back glass. It said, love your mother and had a picture of the earth. Had a picture of the earth. Very, very interesting. Genesis 1 would say, I don't know about that, but you are called to love your father who created the little ball that you have on the back of your vehicle. That the earth is not our mother, but the earth's creator is most definitely our father. And so this chapter goes, verse after verse, in a kind of poetic form. One of the interesting things, if you've been around Genesis for a while, over the last 100 to 150 years specifically, there's been this big debate. People take Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and say, oh, they contradict each other. They contradict each other. But they don't contradict each other. They don't contradict each other. Genesis 1 is poetry. It's poetry. When you look at its language, its structure, its repetition, it's Hebrew poetry. God said, God said, God said, let there be, let there be. And there was sun and moon, light and darkness. And it was good. And it was good. And two is account. Poetry and account. Song and account. And we see this throughout scripture. Just a couple of quick references. Exodus 14 and 15. The account of the Exodus. Exodus 14, chapter 14, is the account. Chapter 15 is the the poetic song. Miriam's song. It's what happened and why it matters. We see it in Judges 4 and 5. Judges 4 is, is a historical account of the victory of the Israelites over an enemy. Judges 5 is a song. It's Deborah's poetically structured song of why that victory matters. And this is what we have in Genesis 1. We have a song of creation, a song by creation to the creator. Now, if you look at Genesis 26 and 27, which will be familiar to you, we'll go ahead and go through to chapter 3. So Genesis 1, 26 and 27 on down. Verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and birds in the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. You see such a clarity about the distinctive differences in gender as determined and assigned by God. That not only does he create different and distinct genders, but because they are different and distinct genders, when they come together in a unique way, they're actually able to reproduce themselves. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky 
and every living creature that moves on the ground. If you look down to chapter 2, well, let's do uh, verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And the seventh day, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, this is not simply a picture of God sitting down and relaxing. This is very clear to ancient Israelites, to an ancient Hebrew writing it, and to ancient Hebrews receiving it. What you see in Genesis uh, 1 and 2 is, is temple language, is this space where heaven and earth come together, where God comes to dwell with his people. And always in an ancient temple, there is an image at last placed in that temple representing the God. And we see those image bearers being human beings here. And when you look at the Hebrew words here, we won't do that this morning. We simply don't have time. But if you look at the Hebrew worms of ver- uh, worms, words of verse 3, that God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. The, the play on the word rest here is not just that God sat down or he kicked back or even that he was satisfied, but that he had finished creating a functional space in which he would dwell and rule with his co-regents, his image bearers, the human beings. This is largely the point of Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2 isn't written to answer questions about how, but about who and why and what God did. So I said that we were going to let God speak to us about the purpose of creation, first of all. The purpose of creation. If you follow some clues here, and Old Testament scholars and commentators note this as they deal with these chapters, you begin to get an idea. First, let's look at this. He speaks eight times, and God says, and it was. God said, let this happen, and it happened. God said, let this happen, and it happened. He never creates without speaking. So you and I can't do that. I can say, let there be light. Then I have to go over and turn on the light switch. Sometimes, even when I am hinting to Sharon, Sharon, let there be light. I still have to go over and turn on the light switch. Think about the the lack of power you have even to say to a child, clean up your room, and then it happens. Right? To look at your bank account and say, let there be more. And then there is. Or even to tell yourself, let me be different by morning. And then you wake up and you are, right? But God never creates without speaking. He doesn't have to go do something after he speaks. His speaking has agency. His word is an agency. Why? How does that work? Let's look at a second hint real quick. You saw as we opened up Genesis 1 that the spirit of God was hovering. Chapter 1, verse 2. The Spirit of God was hovering over 
the waters as the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface. There, there was a, a formlessness in the beginning, a void in the beginning to the raw matter that God had created before he came in force and word and began to form and add functionality to his creation. But the Spirit of God is hovering over the water. Now, this is an amazing personification of the Spirit of God. Because unlike what often pops into our minds of a sort of mist or haze kind of hanging about over the waters like a gas, that's not what's going on here. The the Hebrew word used here for hover is always and only used in the Hebrew language to describe a mother bird hovering over her nest, hovering over either her eggs waiting for her babies to hatch or hovering over her babies waiting for them to fly and to help them fly. The Spirit is referred to as a personification, as one with agency, activity, purpose in creation. And then let's look down in case you missed it. Most of you didn't. But just in case, at verse 26, we find a third clue. Last one we'll talk about this morning. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, and so on and so forth. Let us, let us make, we're a monotheistic religion and faith. Let us make mankind in our image. Who's the us? What's going on here? Some suggest that it it may be angels, and there are places in Scripture where I can understand that they struggle with that, but we're not made in the image of angels. And when you look at Isaiah 40, verse 14, you see very clearly when it came to creation, Isaiah 40, 14 says, with whom did he take counsel? The implication is no one. God took no counsel from anyone when he decided to create when he chose how and why he would create. No one outside of himself. So who's he talking to? Who's he talking to? And all this relates to the purpose of creation. Well, the Bible makes this clear. The reason the Father's Word can actually create is because the Father's Word is a person. Let's say that again. The reason the Father's Word can actually create, the reason there's agency and power there simply in speaking is because the Father's Word is actually a person. The reason the Father's Word has agency and power is because the Father's Word is a person. The Father's Word is the Son, is the Son. In John 1, we find The writer of the gospel say that the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made and nothing was made without him. Who is the he? The he is Jesus that John is pointing us to. In the beginning was the word and the word was Jesus. And Jesus was with the father from the beginning. Through Jesus, everything was created. And without Jesus, nothing was created that has been created. Through the clues we discover in the very opening verses of the Bible, the doctrine of the Trinity, the triune relational nature of God. The community and the love of God are on display as you see this beautiful dance back and forth 
between the Son of God and the Word. God the Father, God the Spirit, all participating in this wonder and power and beauty of creation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit doing it together. From all eternity, don't miss this church, from all eternity, God has been a community. From all eternity, God has been a community, Father, Son, and Spirit. You've heard me say over and over, this is why loneliness is so acutely painful to us. We're created in his image. We're created in the image of one who has always been relational, has always been community. And that community is a circle of love, a mutuality of delight and joy in one another. What is the purpose of creation? What is the purpose of creation? According to Genesis 1, it is to display the community and love of God and invite us in. To display the community and the love of God and invite us in to this loving community that has existed throughout all of eternity. God created in nature a whole community of beings and material existence who can display the glory of God. And God says over and over, it is good. And don't miss this. It is good. 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 It is very good. This is not just a statement of value, but of delight. It's, if you will, a, a, a song of praise and delight over the creation. Like when you take a drink of something that's, that's really fantastic, you set it down and go, oh, that was so good. You watch a movie that really stirs you. Man, that's so good. It's not just value, it's also delight. And we're invited into the song of Genesis 1, where Psalm 19 says, these elements of creation are praising God, they're glorifying God. Even the heavens sing the decrees and the praises of God. We're invited to sing the song of creation in Genesis 1. But we can't. We can't. Why is that? Why is that? Let's look at Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The account of God as he fashions man and from man creates woman. Verse 15, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will surely die. You will surely die. One of the things as you study scripture that, that you come to realize quickly is that the New Testament gives you principles, largely, and the Old Testament gives you pictures, largely. The New Testament defines sin, and the Old Testament depicts sin. God comes to Adam here, and he says, do not eat from this one tree. Everything else is yours. Everything else is yours. Parents, have you ever had that, that one piece of dessert left for yourself? Could have been the last piece of a cake. Likely you hadn't gotten any yet. 
maybe a slice of pie, maybe a cookie you bake just for yourself the size of a tractor tire. And you have to be not present from your home. Probably for some sacrificial family reason, of course. You're going to pick up tiles to re-roof the house. You get back and some savage inside your home has taken what was rightly yours. Right? They could have eaten anything else in the house. Anything else but that one thing. And that's what they chose. That's not exactly the picture that's going on here. But you get the idea. The whole garden is there. Fruitful, beautiful. Relationship with God is full and fine. But God says, don't eat from the tree. Why? Why not? Never any indication that the tree's fruit is bad, that it's poisonous. Why not eat? Can I just tell you, it's as simple as this. Because God said so. Because God said so. Because he commanded you not to. Simply because he said so. God is saying, because I'm God and you're not, and I want you to understand, I am creator and you are creation. You are creatures. And because I have commanded you not to do this, that's why you don't do it. There's no other need. It was an opportunity for man to trust, to delight in, to love, to obey. And you and I struggle with this. The modern secular mind wants to know why. God says this about money. Why? Does it really matter? Obey. And there are whys. God is not arbitrary. But we don't obey, we don't obey because God explains why to us. He doesn't dance for us. He doesn't explain himself to us. God says this about sex and sexual relationships and marriage. Why? Well, there's a whole host of reasons, but it's enough that he says it. Jonathan Edwards has a little treatise on common virtue versus true virtue. I'm going to try to sum it up really quickly. But he talks about the, that most of the good deeds we do as human beings are what he would call common virtue, not true virtue. Which means the motivation underneath the good things we're doing, the virtuous things we're doing, are rooted either in fear or pride. Why don't I lie? Because I don't want to get caught. Because I don't want this to happen if I do. That's fear. Why don't I lie? Because I don't want to be like those people. Because I don't want to be like uh, this guy over here with this reputation. That's, that's pride. I want to be better than. And you can pick out anything you want and work through this. Most people are virtuous on the surface, but they're virtuous on the surface by nurturing fear and pride. You understand that the fuel beneath the action is actually self-centeredness. It's actually sin. He goes on to say this, most people's goodness is, root, is rotten at the root. Most people's goodness is rotten at the root. Most goodness is sinful at the root. We're good because it pays for us to be good in certain ways. And the definition of sin is putting yourself in the place of God. That's at the heart of all sin. I don't want you to be God. I want to be God. I want to do what I want to do for the reasons that I want to do it. And I don't really trust you. I don't really trust you. Common virtue is always temporary. It's going to blow up. 
right? Because you can only pretend to be something you're in fact not for so long. And that's why so many of you, if you've been a Christian a long time, you've had a moment where you said, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I was thinking that. I can't believe I went that far with this. You're so stunned because you haven't gone deep enough into the gospel yet to experience what Edwards called true virtue, which is doing what is good and what is right simply out of love for God, out of a sense of awe at his beauty and goodness. You want to be generous because he's generous. You want to be good because he is good. You want to be gracious because he is gracious. And that's enough. And if you and I look at this and we, and we spend some time with it, we begin to see our lostness. You will begin to see how much um, your goodness is actually you operating out of fear and pride. How much it's fueled by sin. And the beauty of Jesus and the gospel is that it deals with both of those simultaneously. Your pride is dealt with because you're bad enough that he had to die for you. So there's not a whole lot to be proud about. And your fear is dealt with because you're loved enough that he chose to die for you. But let's go on and let's see not only the purpose, but the problem with life. So God gives this command to the man. We all know what's coming, right? It's like when you watch the Alamo, you know the end. You may not. I was born and raised in Texas. I very well know the end of the Alamo. Let's use this more general one. You watch Titanic. You know that it's going to be a fairly enjoyable experience, and then there's going to be a moment where it becomes less fun, right? So we know what is about to happen here. We know. Let's look at three verses, one through five. Now the serpent, the serpent was crafty, more crafty, Then any of the wild animals the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, is that what God said? No, that's not what God said. It's explicitly the the reverse. He said, eat of any tree you want, except this, this one. But this is how the temptation of Satan, who's using the serpent now, comes to all of us. Isn't God being harsh? Doesn't Doesn't he restrict you in ways that if, You could just live outside of those restrictions. You'd be happier. You'd be more whole. At the root of all of our sin is this whisper, not to trust God, that he is in fact not good. And we're tempted to believe it because everyone else we fully give ourselves to hurts us. That's the human experience. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Did God say they must not touch it? No. So, so he's already got her on the hook. She's already saying, you know what? He is kind of harsh. He's had a real attitude lately. Not letting us run around the garden like we want to and do what we want to. We like that tree. It's the biggest tree to climb in the garden. We get all the way up there, we're hungry, and we can't eat the fruit. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. And they take and they eat and the consequences roll right down through all of human history and all 
of God's creation to this very day. To the aches and pains many of you felt when you got out of bed this morning. To the fight that almost every family had before they got to church. To the intense irritation that the timely spouse felt for the spouse who has no sense of hurry this very morning. Yeah, let's look at this quickly. Beginning with verse 8. I'm going to read through here pretty quickly and then I'll just come back and refer to it. So hold on. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Naked. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? So he gives him a choice, right? God comes. God always comes to you. This is the grace and the goodness and the beauty of God. You rebel. You disobey. You spit at him and he comes to you. And he offers you an opportunity to make it right. Verse 12, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Not only is it not my fault, it's your fault, actually. You gave me this conniving woman. Verse 13, when the Lord God said to the woman, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It wasn't on me, Lord. It wasn't on me. It was that slimy, slithering snake that was talking, which threw me off, Lord. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, curse you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life and I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And the woman, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about what I commanded you, I must not, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are and dust you will return. And then... God makes garments. Jake talked about that last week. For the first time in human history, something was sacrificed. Something had to die. Blood was shed to cover for the sin of human beings. And then they're driven out of the garden into God's wilder and more chaotic creation. I just kind of want to walk you through a few things here and call your attention to it. Um, if you look at Genesis 3.16, you see that gender roles are cursed by sin. What does, what does 316 tell us? It's particularly when it says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. One, it tells us there are gender differences. There just absolutely are. To act like there isn't is a childish, dangerous game to play. Second, the gender differences are distorted by sin. 
what the author is telling us here is that now because of sin, men will tend to make an idol out of power. Rule is to, to lord over something. The sinful tendency of men generally will be to dominate women, to feel good about ourselves because of the emptiness that sin creates by ruling over and pushing in front of and staying ahead of and on top of women. Sin will tend to make men idolize power in sexual relationships. But that's not the only thing that verse 16 says. It says your desire will be for your husband. And just as ruling is negative, the author of Genesis wants us to understand this desire in its negative context. Your desire will be for your husband. The sin will, will tend to cause women to make an idol out of the relationship. If I don't have a man, I'm not a person. If I'm not in a relationship, if I'm not married, I'm not whole. I'm not complete. There absolutely are gender differences. Part of how we see that is the tendency to different idols based on specific genders. Tim Keller puts it this way, there's something about a man and something about a woman that is different. And under sin, these differences become distorted and accentuated. The positive complementariness of maleness and femaleness designed to fit together, to work together, to complement one another, to both encourage one another, to be all that God has created us to be, under sin becomes mutually affirming addictions. Relationship is, is fractured. They had to hide from one another. You notice that? They were naked before and it didn't bother them. But all of a sudden it did. All of a sudden, they say, I can't let you know who I am. I've got to control what you know of me. I've got to control what you think of me. I've got to hide. Relationships break down. Social connection breaks down. Work and physical creation breaks down. Look again at verses 17 through 19. God says, Adam, because you listen and you're to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree, which I'd actually commanded you personally, specifically not to do. The ground's going to be cursed. Your work is going to be toil. Work is not a curse. Work is cursed. Some of you may need to tell some family members or a friend, work is not a curse. Work is the goodness of God. Get off the couch, put the Xbox controller down, and go get a job. Young men, women find jobs sexy. Go get one. Right? Work is not a curse. Work is cursed. All death, all disease, all natural disasters are because nature is God's servant and as his creatures, we have rebelled. The reason all these things are breaking down is because we've taken ourselves out of our proper place in the uni universe as God's co-regents as his image bears. There's a, a clock illustration um, that Charles Taylor uses, and he says, you imagine a clock, one of those old, kind of more historic clocks with all the gears and the levers in it. And imagine uh, one, one gear decides it's going to pop off its axle. It doesn't like the part it plays. It's done, and it pops off. It doesn't take any time at all until the clock 
ceases not only to run, but as other things are trying to turn, you begin to smell burning wood and metal. Everything is out of whack. What is the the problem of life? The problem of life is sin and the distortion and implications and fruit of sin throughout all dominions of the created order. Elizabeth Elliot was fond of saying, uh, if you see a rabbit, a frog, a pigeon, a fox run across the road, that fox is glorifying God more than you because the fox is being exactly what God created the fox to be. We're the ones that jumped out of the clock. We jumped off the axle. I referred to this a couple of weeks. I don't think I quoted him, but George Whitfield in a sermon years ago said, you ever notice when you get near the minions of nature, of nature they react so forcefully? Why do the birds screech at you? The dogs bark at you? Why do the reptiles hiss at you? Because they know. They know you have a quarrel with their master. They know, in some intuitive way, you're the cause of all of this. Absolutely everything that's wrong in the world is wrong because of sin. It's tainted gender roles, social relationships, work, everything. Spiritual alienation from God, psychological alienation from yourself, social alienation from one another, and even physical alienation from creation. All breakdowns are because of sin. So what do we do? What do we do? What hope is there for people who our tendency is to duck and dodge even when we attempt to do good? We do so often for sinful reasons. Well, I'll say that Genesis 3 is not ultimately a story about why people hate snakes and why snakes lost their legs. That's not that at all. You won't actually find that in the text. Uh, God doesn't address the snake as one having lost his legs, but as one who will remain legless as we find him in the story and will be eating dust. Verse 14 does say, from now on, not you used to crawl, you used to not crawl, now you will, but from now on, you'll crawl on your belly and you will eat dust. And eating dust is a sign of judgment. Don't miss that. It's a sign of defeat. It's a sign that you've lost. We use it the same way today. You run past somebody, you're like, eat my dust, sucker. What are we saying? I just defeated you. You lost. I'm victorious. That's what's going on here. But then 3.15 comes along. 3.15 comes along. And he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he, her offspring is plural, uh, his offspring is plural, her offspring is singular. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel in the very midst of judgment on serpent and Satan and anyone who follows that way comes what's known as the proto-evangelium or evangelium. The first preaching or statement of the good news of the gospel. Part of what we should realize here is that God's judgment is a, it's a mysterious work. It's a strange work. And even in the midst of judgment, he's got to tell us about this, the good news. And basically what he's saying here is he's going to put enmity between your offspring and hers. Uh, if you go to Revelation 12, you see the dragon uh, and his seed. You see the woman and her seed. God is not saying here that people and snakes are going to hate each other. 
because of sin. Now, most people aren't big on snakes. How many of you would prefer not to have snakes in your house? Yeah, that's most of you. That's most of you. That's where Sharon drew the line with our kids, was with trying to have pet snakes. Though, occasionally, we'll sneak them in in our pockets. I guess I would clarify in that statement then grammatically as one of her children. That came out wrong. He's saying, what God is saying is that the human race will ultimately be composed of two kinds of people. Two kinds of people. Those who follow Satan's advice in the garden and those who follow the Lord. And one of the first signs of redemptive fruit in your life is that you begin to hate sin. To hate sin in your own life and to hate sin in the world. So what we find in Genesis 1 all the way through Genesis 3 is creation inviting you into the circle and you, you can't get there. You ever notice, you ever notice that when you go to the mountains, when you go to the beach, when you stand before a powerful waterfall or a wide raging river, there's a sense of otherworldliness, is there not? There's a sense of something majestic and beautiful and powerful that you so want to be part of, but you can't. You can't put words to it. You want to grasp it and own it and blend into it, but you, you can't. The river's doing what God made the river to do. The mountains are doing what God made the mountains to do. The beach is what God intended the beach to be. They're declaring his majesty, declaring his glory, declaring his beauty. And there's, there's a, a stirring in us, a stirring up toward love. And yet, we can't get there. C.S. Lewis put it this way. We do not just want to see beauty when we look at nature. We want something else, which we can hardly put into words. I want you to think about your places, the mountains you go to, the beaches you love, the rivers, the waterfalls, wherever it is that this happens. I want you to think about it. Think about where you go, the smells there, the beauty your spots, and listen to Lewis's words. I'll start over as you hold those places in your minds. We do not just want to see beauty when we look at nature. We want something else which we can hardly put into words. We want to be united with the beauty we see. We want to pass into it. We want to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. At present, we feel like we're on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and beauty of the morning, but they don't make us fresh. They don't make us beautiful. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, though we yearn to. We feel cut off from something. Tell me, tell me that hasn't been your experience. Why is nature so moving to us? Genesis 1 tells us why. It's God's song of creation to his world. Creation is a choir that's singing eternally the praises and the glory of God. That's why we're drawn to it. But how? How can we join the song? How can we sing the song? 
How can you know? And you need to. How can you know that your creator sings the song back to you? Sings the song of beauty and praise over you as his child. Sings the song of acceptance, forgiveness, restoration, and delight over you. Well, Genesis 1 points us toward how we can know. Genesis 1 begins in the beginning. Remember another book in the Bible that starts with in the beginning? John chapter 1. We referenced it earlier. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. John 1 tells us that the Word became flesh. The Word who made matter became matter. God became man in the person of His Son. Jesus Christ. He came to earth and he went to the cross. And on the cross, his experience was the exact opposite of his powerful, creative experience as the word of God in Genesis 1. He spoke on the cross and nothing happened. He cried out, my God, my God. Why? You're in peace, lad. Are you forsaking me? And there's no answer. On the cross, he was made formless and void. He was empty instead of being filled. The very opposite of creation is what was happening to Jesus on the cross. The very opposite of bringing that which was formerly formless and void into beautiful form and function to the glory of God. Jesus is being dehumanized decreated, deconstructed. Why? Our maker had to be unmade so that we could be remade. Jesus had to be unmade on the cross. He had to become our sin. He didn't sin, but he took our sins on him that we might be able to take on the righteousness of God through him. He was decreated so we could be recreated as marred image bearers of God and his glory. And here's how you experience the recreation, the transformation that Jesus makes possible. Here's how you can enter the song of Genesis 1. You look to Jesus and you trust him. You look to Jesus and you trust him. You trust his life of righteousness, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection, and his affirming ascension, now declaring himself to be the king of the world, not the one who'll come one day and be king, but he who has been enthroned at the right hand of God, given all authority in heaven and on earth, and is now king, regardless of what the nations may think regardless of the wars that rage, regardless of the storms that come. Wars don't get the last word. Rulers don't get the last word. Climate change does not get the last word. Jesus Christ is now the enthroned king of his creation and his people. You look to him and you trust him. And when you come under his lordship, when you return to him in repentance and faith, to the one who created you and the one who can restore you, you begin to heal. You'll never heal fully and finally this side of death. 
but you begin that process. Because when you're outside of the kingdom of God, trying to be your own master and Lord, you break down. You're like a watch trying to be used as a hammer. You're completely outside of how you were created to operate. You're like letting a child drive a vehicle. It's going to destroy the child, the vehicle, and everything around it. Only when you look to Christ on the cross can you enter the circle and sing the song of Genesis 1 of glory and praise to the Father that flows from true virtue of a heart that is simply in awe of the beauty and the goodness of God. Let's pray. Remember, we're at three, four. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you so much for everyone in this room. Thank you, God, for the power and the beauty of your gospel. That, Lord, your gospel is still a spoken word with agency because of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ given through his spirit. Take hold of these words this morning, Lord. Drive them into our hearts and souls and set people free in this room. May those who have been trying to be their own Lord, their own God, their own master, put down their weapons and look at you, your sacrifice, the acceptance of God coming by grace alone rather than any action or work on our part. God, in just a minute, as I finish praying and we prepare to receive offering, I pray that those who are preparing to give this morning, those who've given throughout this week and online, God, that their generosity would flow from a heart made virtuous as they've reflected on your generosity, God. And now as they give, marking themselves to be in line with your people throughout history, I pray that you take all that's given Stretch it. God, use it to do more than we could ever ask or imagine. God, help us to remember that on the other end of our giving is always a changed life. Sweep this room with your spirit now. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lnbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today. 